Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Management and Organization at Foster School of Business at the University of Washington, Kira Shablom is joining me yeah, it's today. Close. Was it? Shablom. <laughs> You got close. Oh, my good. I want the listeners at home to say, because this is always, <laughs> listeners have to hear me struggle with intros each week, but this one I feel like isn't totally on me. No. I feel like this is a difficult pronunciation. It's a German name. Most of the time I get Shabam, so you're much closer. <laughs> Shabam. I get Shabam a lot. So thank you for getting the R in there. Shab- Shabram. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just hearing it, it makes, uh, crazy things happen in my brain. <laughs> like I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say it and I'm now giving up. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we're going to move on, Kira. So thank you for, for joining me. I'm so happy to have, before we get into your work, we just had a very silly discussion about the weather. We did. <laughs> and... <laughs> And it's funny because I've been sharing with listeners, it's springtime now that we're recording this, and I've been doing these intros where I'm like, guys, I've been feeling great, spring is here, I'm over my seasonal depression, the sun is out, I love it, and then I get here and I talk to you and I'm like, I'm thinking about moving back to LA, and you're like, I was in San Diego, it was the worst. You hate the sun. I hate it. It's not the sun, it's the consistently good weather. I get nihilistic, I start thinking about my own mortality, I think, is this all there's left? I like a winter. That is crazy because, I I mean, first off, (laughs) the winter is like, that's like the hard, the winter is like apocalyptic seeming to me. Of course, I'm from Wisconsin originally, so. So I was in Canada the last nine years. Uh, That's where I discovered that I love the winter. I didn't realize before I moved to Montreal and I thought, wow, minus 20 is amazing. I've never felt more alive. Wow. I like it. Well. You know, I'm, I'm jumping way ahead now, but I, okay. I study meaningfulness. And yeah. so one of the things, one of the research topics out there is meaningfulness and happiness. Yeah. Are they the same? And yeah, there's a lot of correlates, but, but there's also a lot of differences. We often find that people who have very high meaningfulness don't necessarily have high happiness. Oh, that's me. Challenges, difficulty, the winter tends to lead to meaningfulness. And so ah. I like it. I like the winter. Hmm. Well, winter is a very contemplative time, I feel like. It's it's the best season. And I'm big into contemplation. I'm surprised you're a summer person then. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I get that. So I did did live, so I lived in Malibu for a hot minute. (laughs) And I would go across the street to the, and it was like the happiest I ever was. I was like getting in shape and everything. But I will say, I would go across the. I lived across the street from the ocean. Mm-hmm. I'd I'd pack up my stuff. I'd go over there. I'd sit on the beach, surrounded by beautiful people on the ocean, and and uh, having a great time. And I'd get out my notebook to get some writing done, and nothing. It's the worst. You can't write jokes. 
hanging out in paradise. No, you cannot. <laughs> Doesn't work Don't at move all. To LA is the Almost lesson. ruined my career. I will. I'll give you that. So that's move to interesting. So okay, yeah. That that's that. Well, that's a one. What a wonderful lead in uh, unexpectedly. <laughs> a lot into of people have hung up already. You're uh, no, I, that's <laughs> not true at all. Uh, but that that is. I never put that together before. The difference between meaningfulness and and happiness. As someone who now, as you say it, I. I definitely have more meaning in my life than yeah. I have happiness. Well, there's a lot of, you know, I study the meaning of work, so I'm not talking about my own research here, but there's a ton of work on that out there. Have you heard of the parenting paradox? Uh-uh. So when you're a parent, you tend to be oh, lower in happiness, happy. but yeah, more meaningful. More, right, 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 right. And so right, it's right, these right, trade-offs right. that... Mm-hmm. What, that I'm interested in in the workplace as well because the thing in the workplace we're always telling people find your calling do what you're passionate about and we, we present that as if okay and then you have this perfectly happy path forever and it's just not that simple oh no no, no not as you at probably all. know as a comedian I, yeah I mean <laughs> I followed my dreams I swear like you're told to follow your dreams by a bunch of people that have never actually followed their dreams or pursued them, have no idea what it's actually like to do that or to accomplish a dream. Because if you did, you know, like there's there's like serious downsides to following your dream and even accomplishing your dreams. Well, and the other thing that people don't realize is this is a really new phenomenon. Like if you look at human history, this idea of like find your dream... It's been around for a very short second. So this is this is a new thing we're doing. Yeah, yeah. the following your bliss stuff. Yeah. That's, that's brand new. Finding a pa- viewing work as something that could give you meaning. That's mm. fairly new. That idea, and I'm talking Western history now, that's kind of my expertise, but that idea was introduced by the Protestant reformers, which sounds like a long time ago, but was 500 years ago. Right. Then it kind of fell away again during the Industrial Revolution, and it's really only in the 20th century that we've kind of picked it up again and said... Find your passion. It's it's a really new idea. Work wasn't seen like that before. Yeah, I you know? mean, I imagine like our hunter-gatherer ancestors weren't just loving every second of like building <laughs> yeah. the shelter. This is my calling. I <laughs> I am I imagine they liked the after that was done and hanging out and dancing and socializing and and that sort of stuff a bit more than the uh, necessities of yeah. of life. Well, well, sociologists have kind of come up with these three ways of describing work. And so far, we've talked about two of them. So the calling is this idea of meaningful work, meaningful for myself, and usually also something that makes a social impact. A job, which we tend to talk about in these simpler terms, but a job is work that you do to support something important outside of life. So when you're talking about your hunter-gatherers, what you're really talking about is I have to do these chores so that I can live and mm-hmm. have children. But, but that's fundamentally a different idea. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, back to back to like kind of dreams and pursuing your yeah. your passion, which is always like I, I remember when I was a kid, it was I don't know if they still do this. If they do, I wish they'd stop. <laughs> but um, they're like, you can be an astronaut or the president of the United States. And first of all, uh, not a big fan of uh, <laughs> presidents, <laughs> generally speaking, especially the current. Uh, but uh, but like, first off, no, you can't. Um, second, like astronauts are like a, a glorified publicity stunt. Like there's there's nothing astronauts are doing that robots can't do better for the most part. And 
So, so I didn't grow up in this country. So I okay. will say, I think that's a very American notion. Okay. Thing. So I'm German. I grew up in Germany. My yeah. parents' point was always, if you don't get straight A's, you're going to be homeless. So it's very ah. much avoid this negative thing rather okay. than aspire to this positive thing. I mean, I had like the practical Midwestern. It's why okay. I didn't tell anyone that I wanted to be a stand-up comedian <laughs> because practical. people would have been like, no, you can't, you can't do that. But I just remember like grade school teachers being, uh, being like, you can do what you can be anything you want to be. And yeah, so I mean, I pursued that. So I, I've talked about this before on the show, but it's relevant. Um, you, you know, did the, did the thing, followed my dreams, accomplished that I wanted to do yeah. one. I had like one major goal when I started, I wanted a comedy central presents a half hour. It's like, it seemed like way out there, but yeah. still like people did it. It's not maybe. astronaut, but it's yeah, yeah. And I, and I, I did that. Uh, and I had to accomplish a lot of other things to get there that were also, you know, fun and meaningful and fulfilling, I guess. But I remember I did. The, I I recorded this half hour special, everything I'd been dreaming of. And it went great. It I, like really couldn't have gone any better. It was yeah. terrific. Had this after party afterwards. A bunch of like friends and family it was like you really couldn't hope for a better situation. And I remember just immediately being hit with this feeling of just like emptiness yes. of just like. Well, now what do I yep, do? That's me in this job. When I, <laughs> you know, there's few places other than academia where you go from like years and years of slogging to grad school to suddenly like you get the status, you get this title. I worked in nonprofits before. I make a lot more money now. So you have this jump in everything. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, now what? Uh-huh. Like what's, yeah. So there's this real depressive period that can come after we hit these goals. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I do. I think a lot of the depression is... Uh, make uh, is partially a mechanism that makes us introspective and makes us um, pause a bit before um, committing to the next path forward Um, it's not fun (laughs) but but I I have good things have come I, I don't think that you know doing this podcast and pursuing science communication and other things have have come of uh you know being like well now what the hell do i do <laughs> um so it, it's not all like doom and gloom but it is i wish i could i wish everyone could feel what it feels like to accomplish your dreams just to like know to not take them overly seriously i like i like that frame well so what I'm really interested in is purpose, mm-hmm. right? And, and what interests me about purpose is it can't really be accomplished. So in business school, we usually study goals. So how challenging a goal should you set for yourself? How motivating is that to you? Blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and I like purpose because th- there is no end point. If you're an oncologist and you want to cure cancer, it probably isn't going to happen in your lifetime. Yeah. But so you don't have this depressive, hey, I cured cancer, now what? Right, it's, right. It's way further in the distance. It's more, more the journey than it's, the destination. I, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do. Uh, I mean, it's what I like about doing this podcast yeah. is I just release one a week. There's no like end oh, to it. There's that? not a grand finale. I mean, I go in streaks. Okay. Sometimes I record a bunch and then sometimes I like take a month of like, I can't do this for a okay. while. <laughs> That's the lot. 
but uh yeah i mean i mean and and by the way i am still plenty susceptible to the like what is the point of (laughs) doing any of this like who am i like why am i talking with these people like i'm not smart enough to be doing this even if i was like who cares is anyone listening does anyone care does any of this i still have plenty of those feelings from time to time but i do i do feel like this podcast and 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 kind of how i've framed my new career is a little more purpose oriented than like goal setting that's cool so um so so tell me about uh tell me about your background and in your work yeah so i think we've kind of started talking about it already so i'm interested in meaningful work and, and we often use the term calling for that. Um, I should be clear that I use the academic definition, which doesn't have a religious sense necessarily anymore. And so if you look at the origins of the word calling, it's very much a religious mm. term that comes from the Protestant Revolution, that it's God calls you to do something. So I don't necessarily think about it in that, those terms, although it does correlate with religion. So religious people do tend to see work more as a calling. Mm. What I'm interested in is people who primarily see work as a means to have an impact, either a personal impact, so this is my craft, I'm an artist, or some sort of social impact. Um, I'm kind of the second generation of people who study that. So the first generation focused more on the positive outcomes. So should we be telling people, hey, go for it, go for your passion, go for your calling? Um, And they did find that there's quite a lot of benefits associated with it. Mm. Greater satisfaction, greater engagement. Um, I'm kind of the second generation that starts to look at some of the challenges that come with that. If we're going to tell all our students, hey, you can be an astronaut if you want to be, realistically, what does that look like? Right. Right. And so we know that people who are pursuing a calling are willing to leave a lot of money on the table. They are more prone to exploitation by organizations and management. Um, in my own research, I study burnout and conflict. This is um, the. This is how comedy clubs keep their costs low is because young, desperate, yeah. some, and sometimes... Um, 38-year-old desperate comedians. You know, they're early on, a lot of it is actually really all throughout a comics career. Mm. A lot of things is like you're getting paid in like opportunity <laughs> and exposure. I mean, that's grad school too, right? Yeah. Like, like, I want to be a professor and I will do this to get there. Yeah. Right. And so it, it's a lot of, uh, uh, well, you know, we're, we're going to give you this spot. It doesn't pay, or maybe it pays like $25 or something like ridiculous. But, um, but you know, this is, you get the experience of it. And, and, uh, that really gets, I, I wish that I could, um, like I want to have some app, uh, like an app for entertainers, where you can like track your if, uh, like Bitcoin, but with uh, but with like exposure or like opportunity or whatever, and you get like forty opportunity <laughs> points, and then like once you amass enough opportunity points to like be seen by some like late night booker or something like that. Instead, you can just like sell them to some other idiot comic who isn't going to get picked for this show. Um, that, that's, Fair that, that's what I wanted, but but there's but there's a lot of uh, yeah. a, a lot of that with with 
I, I think in the arts yes. generally. So I have a colleague at the London School of Economics, um, Shasa Dopro-Rizzo. She studies musicians. And she's got these really cool longitudinal studies where she took high school musicians and then followed them over a decade to see what happened. And what she shows is that the stronger your sense of calling the less you're willing to listen to negative feedback. So if I'm your music um, teacher and I say like, hey kid, you don't really have what it takes. You don't listen to that, you keep going. Mm -hmm. The more frustration you have, the more money you're willing to leave on the table to make it into that profession. Mm -hmm. So it it comes at a price. Um, my research is primarily with animal shelter employees and that's because my own background is in animal welfare. Mm. Um, I fell into academia, that's a, that's a whole nother story. but. But yeah, they're willing to leave a lot on the table and take a lot to do this thing that they're really, really passionate about. So, yeah, yeah, saving dogs. Yeah, yeah, and cats. And cats. <laughs> and cats. And, but <laughs> okay. and other critters. You're not, and other critters. No, I'm a, I'm a every animal. Okay, person. good. <laughs> yeah, very, very much so. Fair and enough. I dated a veterinarian for a long okay. time, and it's uh, the, those shelters can be heartbreaking. So it's good. It's good to see people that care about. Well, I mean. And that's the other thing. And you tell me if it's that way in, in comedy, but if your calling is saving animals, the job you're expected to do is the worst job on the planet for you because you have to euthanize animals, mm -hmm. you have to deal with abuse and neglect. And so they come in with these ideas of, I'm going to make a difference here. I'm going to save all the animals. And, and then they walk into that shelter. And in the vast majority of places, it's like, oh, no, there's no resources. And it's a nightmare. And, and that hits you really hard. Yeah. I mean, I don't, uh, for, for comedians, it's more of just like the feedback of, so early, like I, I figured out early on how to get people to laugh. Like mm -hmm. I can elicit laughs from people. That's like base level. Okay. Easy. But then to like actually pursue like meaningful content and like yeah. say things that are important and make ah. it, and, and make it, uh, you know, more. Uh, add like more of a sense of purpose to what I'm doing makes things more challenging. Is that and, important to you? Uh, it is. Yeah. Like, it, why? Why isn't the laughter enough? Oh, um, I think that it's probably be because we evolved to be bottomless pits of want, and I'll <laughs> never be satisfied. Um, but that's just a guess. Um, right. But <laughs> happiness is that laughter. Like, why? It's a, oh, laughter does very little. Okay. For so you've, me. you've got a tolerance now. Um, I guess. Or never, it just never. I think it's more just like, when I get laughs, it's like the feedback that I need to be like, okay, that timing worked, mm -hmm. and the structure of that work and worked, and my prediction was correct, and it elicited the response mm -hmm. that I was looking for. It's like more of a mechanical okay. thing, rather than a like, boy, it sure feels good to crack up <laughs> a like bunch me. of people. I don't okay. I don't get that as okay. much. I feel a little awkward talking with people after shows, and so <laughs> I get like, uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I don't handle compliments well. I think I have low self-esteem. Um, I know I have low <laughs> self-esteem, but um, <laughs> sorry, I'm not laughing no, at you. No, that's <laughs> okay. I know, um, but uh, but I but it is, uh, and also I like to challenge myself. Mm -hmm. Because I was like really good at getting laughs out of people early on, it was easy for me mm. not to brag. But um, but what is very challenging is is taking stuff like this, mm. what we're talking about, yeah. trying to take pieces out of it 
and explain it to people in a comedy club who are just like there for a night out and like don't want to learn a new thing and then explain like the difference between meaning and happiness to people, <laughs> which i do actually have some material related okay. to this that i do but but you know i'll i'll show up like last night yeah. i was at a club or uh, and uh you know it's a good club and it's in seattle which is like a smarter audience genuine genu- generally pandering and I mean, you we'll know, take it. I mean, go to Toledo, Ohio sometime, <laughs> and you'll be like, "Oh, Seattle is a very smart audience." Um, so, but you know, I'll I'll do my like biology jokes or whatever, mm-hmm. and there's definitely going to be people like audibly being like, "What the hell is he talking about? Like, what is this?" Like, and and it's understandable because people, some people have been working hard all week, just want to turn off their brain and have have some laughs. But anyway. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. I'm I'm talking about myself so much right now, <laughs> but trying to kind of yeah. put purpose into it is it definitely makes uh, my life harder than it probably yeah. needs uh, to all be. All the research would support that. And I, <laughs> you know, I unnecessarily alienate audiences who would be perfectly happy with my just standard other jokes that yeah. I that I do, and and um, so so yeah, and I I think. I think that that's not uncommon for comics Comics to do that. It seems to be the natural trajectory of like, you catch some breaks, mm. you get to do this for a living or whatever, and then you're like, well, now I want to say something. And that's why there's like political <laughs> yeah. comedians and all of that stuff. Well, I mean, the good thing is you're aware of it, right? Because I think, you know, my students are in their late teens and early 20s, and I think they've been sold this idea that you can have it all. You oh, can be man. happy and have meaningfulness. <laughs> at least you're at a point where you realize there is a trade-off, and that's that's fine, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When I was younger and someone would be like, I want to be a stand-up comedian. What should I do? I'd be like, go for it. Mm. Why not? Go to an open mic. Blah, blah, blah. Check it out. And I'm still all for people checking out an open mics, but... The, the issue is people like look at the top comics mm. and they're like, I want to be like that. Right. I want to be like uh, Pete Holmes or something like that. And and one, you're not going to be. Yeah. Because um, well, uh, he's, you know, there's very special. Uh, that's why they're the 1% yeah. of the 1%. Here's like the trajectory that anyone that's listening that's like, I'm thinking about comedy. I met someone who's a feature act that means like they're middling they're not doing it for a living Mm -hmm. just like you can make some money on the road some people could do it full-time but it's near impossible but this guy has a job that he works remotely pays his bills 
does really well financially with this job and then just does comedy for fun isn't dependent on the money doesn't need to like impress clubs to be invited back to like do all of that stuff and then go skydiving everywhere he goes and i'm like that is what i should have done (laughs) oftentimes i mean yeah it's a tricky question you know so so i study burnout and callings and and what we found is there isn't really such a thing as like one way to have a calling and so Mm -hmm. we did this study with animal shelter employees because we were interested why so few last Um, And so we have the vast majority of people in animal shelters quit often in the first year. And then you've got like this 10% of people who are still there 20 years later. And now these are the people who are actually changing the field. So they're introducing, whenever you hear about animal welfare legislation, they're those people. They're the people who do, you know, hurricane evacuations. And so we're interested in finding out, well, like, what's different about those people that they can make it Mm. work? And and what we found is, and I think this is the same for any kind of either artists or craftsmen, um, they see themselves as practitioners. So this isn't, I'm uniquely qualified to do this. It's, I want to be part of this community and I want to learn. And so the advantages of that is when they run into obstacles. So when they have a bad night, if I want to go with your metaphor, or mm-hmm. they've had a bad run, they don't take that personal. It's just, I got to learn how to change that. Whereas we find people for whom this is their whole identity. This is what I was meant to be. They take it personal and they get broken by the job. Hmm. And so that's number one. And then number two, frankly, is they work better with others because they don't see it as a me against them. I'm the unique person who gets this. I was meant to be a stand-up comedian. The rest of you are just kind of here because you fell into it. Um, And so they're not assholes to their coworkers. And so they get opportunities. They grow Mm. in the field. So those are kind of the two things that make a calling sustainable, at least based on what we're finding. And this is Mm. fairly new research. We've been studying this for 10 years. but That is very important and interesting. Um, hmm. Yeah, especially as a, my, my ex was a social worker. Okay. And speaking the of... The veterinarian, high, or is this just your type? Oh, I have a... Uh, <laughs> well, I have a, I have a few different types. Uh, monogamous. I, my, my last one was a social worker. Okay. And, uh, and speaking of high burnout, there, there is few occupations with higher burnout than yep. social, social work. So mm-hmm. that's... Hmm. Yeah, I've done a little bit of research with people who work in residential care homes with um, adults with autism. Hmm. Very similar story, right? And so, so, so what surprise does, we went into those studies thinking that you have to be the most passionate, that the only people who can possibly survive those kind of challenges are the people who have always wanted to do it, and they're mm. like, this is who I am. They're the least likely to survive it. You actually have to come in there with like, hey, I'm here to check it out, and I'm here to learn and grow a community. That's the people who last. Hmm. Well, man, you've given me so much to think about. Uh, so, I, I mean, gosh, I'm 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 gonna make it about me again, and this is embarrassing how much I'm talking about myself. <laughs> Please it's do. just so relevant. Um, I do feel like over the last several years, I've kind of done a um, character restructuring because I and now that you say, I'm like, yeah, I I had to go from like this goal pursuit to. Like trying to to more of a practitioner to like putting myself in like, okay, I don't, you know, especially with this podcast, I go and talk with people where I know I'm not going to be more informed than you on the subject that you're the expert in. It's a humbling experience all of the time. And so I very much look at it as just like a learning experience throughout. And I, I 
trend. Uh, I do that on stage a fair amount too because definitely the most heartbreaking things are the ones where I'm just like okay I figured it out and this is what and now I'm gonna be I I figured out this special thing that no one else is doing and I'm uniquely qualified for that and then uh things eventually fall apart I think that's most careers you know for me it's academia so Mm. that's what I happen to know because I've spent the last decade in it but you know, every year we get together and we try to figure out which PhD students admit. And, and which PhD students what? To admit. Uh-huh. Right. So every year. I thought we, you said which PhD <laughs> students take meds. Oh, no. <laughs> that's right. Like, we that's have a, a poll going. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> who to bring in, right? But you have these resumes in front of you and you try to figure out who can make it. And there really isn't like one clear answer. But what I've found is that the ones who are like, I've always wanted to be a professor. And I just don't think. Don't put yourself through six years of grad school for that, right? So for me, it's if you're passionate about, about learning something and you're curious, I can teach you the rest. But that to me is much more important than this is who I am. I see. You know? Huh. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, this uh, this is almost like... Uh, not that I know much of anything about <laughs> Buddhism, but, I mean, but, this, but this is like a very Buddhist sounding of kind of like a, a detaching from a, a, like a, a sense of identity yeah, and, which, and goal pursuit. and Which is weird because, I mean, if you want to go into religion, the idea of calling comes from Protestantism and specifically Calvinism. I mean, the idea mm-hmm. of capitalism does too, right? But so, sorry, I don't know how far you want me to go back, but... Yeah, um, I mean... Because these are ideas, so what Protestantism did is it took meaningfulness away from the secular. Before then, you could only have meaningfulness if you were a priest or something. And it said, how can you have impact in the secular world through your job and all that? And sorry, I don't know where I was going with this. But yeah, these are religious ideas that have created our current view of work some of it sort of seems like a little bit of a scam from like an authoritarian like point of view like what a terrific way to manipulate a bunch of like grunt workers or whatever is to be like you are you are a piece of this and look at this piece of fabric that 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 has your land's symbol on it yeah. this is this is why you're cleaning toilets day in and day out so you should love that you're cleaning toilets yeah you know it's tricky it they actually have done a study of calling in janitors and they found really? yeah and they found i think it was jane dutton in michigan and what they found is there is actually so we can find callings in every job i'm not arguing that it's the same percentage in every job but what they found is they had these janitors who viewed the work as a calling um, because they were working in hospitals and because they saw themselves right. as like the first line of defense against infection and ah. all that. Um, i agree with you 100 percent. i think that can be exploited very right. easily but i do think it comes from the person first and foremost mm-hmm. oh that's interesting but, yeah so how do you study something? So, so you say that, you know, you, you've done these studies. Here's yeah. what your findings were. What were the studies? Yeah, I mean, I'm a field researcher. And so broadly speaking, in business schools, we kind of have these three areas. We have experimentalists, where you go into the lab and you do these experiments, often with undergrads. You have field researchers, so a lot of this is based on surveys. Or I do qualitative work, which means I actually go into the organization and I interview and observe. Um, the third one is archival data. I don't do a lot of that, although I've done a little bit of that. But yeah, so I go I go into organizations where I'm likely to find employees with a high sense of calling. So animal welfare, um, working with the handicapped, doing some work with uh, 
data from the UFC, not with the UFC, but I'm trying to get all their purse data and stuff because a lot of mixed martial artists refer to the work as a calling. Mm. And then um, you talk to people, right? So you can do interviews, you can give them surveys, and you can kind of start to look at either why questions. So surveys lend themselves to why are these two things related or how questions, interviews allow you to have someone tell you, this is how I'm doing my work and they tell you their story. So what we've talked about so far, the, the animal shelter and burnout study, those were interviews, right? And we snowball sampled, we talked to someone and they said, I have a friend you should talk to. And we said, great. Hmm. Yeah. So how does burnout work? What, what's like the, uh, what are the common um, factors? Yeah, so burnout, do you want like a history lesson or do you want just a quick snapshot? Uh, what, what? we got time. Okay. So the concept was introduced by um, a psychologist living in New York City. He was a Holocaust survivor. Um, and during the week, he was working with Wall Street bankers. And on the weekends, he was volunteering his time with um, kids living in these burnt out buildings. This was New York in the 70s. And what he discovered is that the two populations, which seem very different on paper, had very similar symptoms. And he coined the term burnout because they people were living in these burnt out houses. And to him, that was the perfect metaphor mm. that you had these people that, you know, they're still standing, but they're hollowed out on the inside. I'm very happy. I chose the history. Okay. <laughs> so Herbert Freudenberger, um, in business, we tend to use the Maslach definition of burnout. And it basically has three sub factors, emotional exhaustion. And so you're, you wake up in the morning and you're already tired. You're like, ugh, another day. Um, cynicism, or sometimes known as depersonalization. And so you see yourself as removed from your work or from others. What's what's the point? Um, uh, and a third, that's my jam. I'm <laughs> that's all your over jam. That one. Um, and reduced personal efficacy. So like things you used to be good at or that came easy suddenly are incredibly hard. Those tend to be the three factors that if you have all three of those, we would describe as burnout. Most people prioritize emotional exhaustion. They kind of define that one as the primary symptom hmm. so who who are the people that are the most susceptible to this everybody <laughs> there's a everybody. gallup poll that came out last year that um 67 percent of employees feel burned out summer most of the time oh I th okay some or most, most of, of the, the time. time i thought you said summertime oh summertime <laughs> i was like hey. this is not just my bias against summertime <laughs> no but yeah no people are really burnt out yeah yeah. Oh, well, I mean, if you ask me, I don't I don't think that humans were meant to work the length of hours that we're actually working. Uh, I don't think we evolved in a world where we are working this much. 100% agree, especially because we seem to be moving in a direction where fewer people are working longer hours, right? Mm -hmm. So like a lot of service jobs are going away very rapidly due to automation. And then you've got more creative or innovative types who are now in their offices, hours and hours. Um, I think about that a lot, though, because I study the meaning of work, right? So I fundamentally believe that we need work of some work in some capacity to have meaningfulness. So if we could snap our finger tomorrow and no one has to work anymore, machines are doing everything, I think that would be really problematic. But so I think about a lot, well, what's what's the balance? How do how do we give people meaningfulness? And But don't you think like an easy compromise is if a full-time job consists of like a 30-hour work week or something. So like a European model. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, the, <laughs> the problem is though, work isn't going to lend itself to that down the line, right? What do you mean? Well, what do you do for, 
if, if, if routine work is going away because we can automate that and all that's left is innovative work, right? So coming up with new ideas, the arts, the sciences. A, can everyone do that? Does everyone want to do that? And B, that's not really a 30-hour work week. I feel like, and this is way outside my expertise. We're just like shooting the breeze now. Yeah, we're shooting but the breeze. But I think that's, if, if anything, I think the idea of a work week needs to fundamentally go away, right? Like when and how we do our work, we really need to just step away and think about that then rather than you work 30 hours and then you put it down, you go home. Because we don't, flow doesn't work that way. Our minds don't work that mm -hmm. way. Hmm. Yep. So I'm going to start a business. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, well, I, you know, I have an assistant um, and maybe an intern starting soon. Um, say I want to burn them out. <laughs> just like, this is my goal in life. I just want to burn another human being yeah. out. Real, like, what What can I do? Okay, so the first, there's some arguments that, and I'm going to use a metaphor here that the literature uses, you can't really burn out if there wasn't a flame in the first place. So you got to hire someone who's at least passionate about the job. If this intern just like threw a dart at a board and that's how they found you, they're already a little bit protected from burning out because okay. they don't care. So number one, you should hire someone who's passionate about mm -hmm. your business. And then number two, are you familiar with the curvilinear model of stress? Mm, maybe. Okay. Well, the argument I, I, is... It doesn't sound familiar. So the argument is that, that stress kind of falls on a curve. Most lay people think that stress is linear, that you reach an amount of stress coming at you or an amount of strain in your life that you can't handle and then you burn out. Um, and actually what we find is there's kind of a sweet spot somewhere in the middle. So we all need a certain degree of stress or challenge to function optimally. So to burn them out, you can either push them way over the curve so you can give them conflicting responsibility, way too many tasks than they could possibly do in a certain amount of time. Daily hassles lend themselves really well to burnout. So make them commute, make them wear uncomfortable uniforms. Um, or if you want to be sneaky, you can also have them at the very low end of that stress curve. You just have them sit on their computer with way too little to do. You can get them to burn out that way too. Hmm. Again, I'm not advocating this, but Keeping them in the moderate zone reduces is probably most optimal. So either have them at the high end or the low end. That's that's your call. Hmm. Depends on how sadistic you want to be about this. Well, I'm just trying to figure out what this uniform is going to look like. <laughs> it's got to be uncomfortable. So itchy okay. polyester would be great, right? So okay. any daily hassles are really problematic because there's just nothing you can do about them. They just wear you down. Hmm. Whereas a lot of the things that people think are going to lead to burnout, so time pressure or increased responsibility, usually they don't. They usually are pretty good for you. Humans like challenge. So how much control do people have over some of this stuff in their lives i mean i get the so i can uh i have quite a bit of flexibility yeah. in my schedule i don't have much in the way of like punching in and punching out i have to be to my shows on time my shows are like such a small amount of what i do like i show up Mm -hmm. I tell some jokes, I leave. That's like the easy part, and that's how I get paid. But the the difficult part of my job is like lining up podcasts, reading, researching, writing jokes, and that takes a lot more self-discipline, and, and then I can... And sometimes I'm doing good, I can tap into my flow states, and sometimes, you know, I can I can like go to like, 
a rock climbing gym and work from there and send out my emails and then go climb on rocks for a while and then come back and send out emails again. And, and I have all of this incredible flexibility. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't have no. anything anywhere close to that. What what hope does the average person have if you're working just a regular old nine to five job yeah. of protecting themselves against burnout? What what it, control it, do people have? Yeah, it's tricky. So let me be very clear that I think you and I are in a really privileged position yeah. that we have so much control. A lot of it is done by the employer, right? So the way the employer designs your job can really put you in this tricky position that leads to burnout. Um, Amy Rasniewski at Yale studies something called job crafting, which is employees' efforts to try to change some of the boundaries of their work within these restrictions. And so she's kind of come up with these three categories, um, cognitive crafting, task crafting, and social crafting. So cognitive crafting is the least effort you can think differently about the work that you do. It can still be the same crappy work, but by having a different attitude about it, and I realize this sounds really Pollyanna, but it, it can improve it a little for you. So we've talked about the janitors earlier. Yeah, that's a perfect mm-hmm. example of reframing. Um, there was Adam Grant and colleagues did a study of call center employees and one of those alumni fundraising centers. And what they found is that if you bring in the recipients of scholarships once a month and introduce call center employees to, hey, I when see. you do the fundraising, this is who it benefits gives you a little bit more purpose. I'm just, it's, I've worked in a call center, so I'm not saying it suddenly makes it the best job in the world. Mm-hmm. But, but so that's cognitive crafting. That's the, the, the least effort, the easiest thing that anyone at this point can do. That can still be really tricky if you just hate your job, if you work in a really crappy job. Mm-hmm. Um, what takes a little bit more effort would be task crafting. So seeing if you can adjust your tasks a little bit, having a better schedule, asking to be put on projects that you really enjoy. Um, and then social crafting is who do you do the work with? So that can either be, hey, I really hate these coworkers. Let me try not to have to work with them. Um, or it could be changing the relationships. So taking your coworkers out for a beer after work and getting to know them a little. It fundamentally changes how you feel while you're at work. So it really depends on the restrictions put on you by your employer. And again, I realize that a lot of entry-level jobs have very little flexibility. But crafting is kind of what employees can try to autonomously do to improve mm. how they think about their work. Hmm. I mean, there are so many different, especially when you're kind of talking about reframing, mm-hmm. um, there are so many different influences that go into the perception of doing the exact same task. Yeah. Like the probably the easiest example is I know every real job that I ever had in my life when I, when I started, and, and even in comedy, um, but um, comedy I still uh enjoy um most of the time um it it affords me a lot of opportunities to Mm -hmm. pursue things like this that i i'm very passionate about but anyway the most jobs like when i start there's like this learning process and it's kind of new and this is like oh there's opportunity here and maybe i'll stand out and become a supervisor and get a raise or whatever and like and i remember actually like enjoying jobs for six months a year year, whatever and then after that time yeah i'm doing it you know if if we were robots yeah 
like from an objective point of view, you're doing the exact same. You're making the exact same widget in the exact same way or whatever. Um, but but your perception of this has changed well, dramatically. Yeah. So I'll give you I'll give you a crafting example from our animal shell from an animal shelter study and. Um, those are very restricted jobs, right? So you don't have a lot of flexibility and you don't have a lot of say. But so what we found there is that when employees first came in, they try to avoid the really difficult stuff. So if I can avoid coming in on Tuesdays, because I know Tuesdays is euthanasia, I will. What we found was interesting is that after about six to, six months to a year, as they got to know the shelter better, as they started to understand the really massive problems facing it, so breed restrictions externally, lack of funding they started volunteering for those tasks or they started thinking, well, this may be terrible work, but I'm the only one who can do this. I'm here for it. So mm. so you also see these recursive cycles where depending mm. on what challenges you're perceiving at work, as you get more sophisticated in understanding the organization, you kind of start to tackle it in a different way. Hmm. If that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Huh. So I, I guess let's say I have someone listening let's see who's uh, usually my demographic skews a hair older um but let's say i have someone who's like just about to start college or something like that listening right now what what is what do you want people to or how would you um maybe help nudge or guide our current education system in in terms of like what we tell kids to pursue in the first place huh yeah i I know academics don't like being prescriptive (laughs) a lot of times i definitely don't like to be well the other thing is you know i work in a business school but my background is very much in the humanities so my undergrad was in creative writing Mm -hmm. um I'm a little concerned that we have reframed college as just this practical thing that you go and you get a STEM degree or a sensible education. I get why, I think, especially, shoot, where am I going with this? Um, you know, after the Great Recession, I get that people are very concerned about job security and all that, but I do think that college is a time for you to become a more informed citizen and informed employee um, and and just to learn how to think. So I don't think my advice, and again, please come to a business school, that's where I teach, but um, I don't think my advice is figure out what's the most sensible job and then get that degree. I think just le- enjoy college, learn how to think. Um, careers are not lifelong anymore, right? So if I talked to you 50 years ago, you probably would have been hired by an employer after college and then you would have stayed with that employer and at the end you would have gotten a gold watch and a retirement package. It doesn't work that way anymore. People switch jobs every five years. CEOs on average leave every seven years. And so I think just being open to having what we call a protean career, which is really just a fancy word of saying like, there's gonna be pivots and opportunities and just pursue those. So I guess I would say it doesn't really matter that much. Just be open to learning and realize that your career is probably going to take you places that you didn't expect. Hmm. I mean, I, I definitely feel like in my my years of doing this podcast and being introduced to various aspects of the sciences, there's certain things that I just click with mm-hmm. really well. And, and uh, But I've had to put myself in a position where I'm exposed to a lot of different things that I'm not necessarily even like, 
interested in or know that I would necessarily yeah. be interested in to yeah. start. I'm just like, okay, yeah. I'll like go and talk to this person about zebra mussels or something. I don't know how I'm going to have this conversation. And then it's like far more fascinating yeah. than I thought it was going to be. So I, I've put myself in positions where, I, but then I do, you know, because then I find things that I know how to, how to speak about really, really well, rather than like, if I would have been forced into just like picking a practical, I would have been like, I guess maybe I'll be an accountant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like sort of like numbers and it seems easy enough. And I, I, I would have never um, uh, been exposed to a lot of this. So is there is there a way to early on? And I never went to college, so I don't even know how college works necessarily. <laughs> but like the first couple of years, is there a way of just exposing yourself to the most number of just like seeing the most number of fields and finding your way that way. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's what electives are for. Now, again, I should say, because I was a creative writing major, I had a lot of free time to dabble in other in other courses, and I think I learned a lot. I look at our students now, they're so much more accomplished, and, and I'm not pandering. I really mean that. I, I Right before this interview, I was judging a case competition of high school students, and they were like doing financial analysis, and they knew how to do all this stuff. Um, so what I'm saying is, I feel like kids these days... Um, they're just so much more prepared, but I do worry that they're also too focused on, okay, I got to get that accounting major and I got to have a safe job. And there's a good reason for that. There's a little bit of research that if you if you grow up in times of economic uncertainty, that stays with you. We've seen that with the um, Great Depression generation. I think we're going to see it with the kids that grew up in the Great Recession. I think they have worries that we didn't have at that age. Um, and so it's really easy for me to say like, hey, kids, go and explore and learn, um, because I know it's scary from their end. They want a solid job. But I do think that if they can embrace that risk of learning more, that is actually what the future of work looks like. I think work is going to be more fluid and less secure. And so the more you can expose yourself to different areas, counterintuitively, I think that will be of value to you. Hmm. Great. Well, each week I have my guests plug a charity of their choice. I bet you have one in mind. I do. Is there anywhere I can plug two? Because I'm involved with two. And you can kill plug me. three if okay. you want. Okay. If you are in the Seattle area, the Seattle Animal Shelter, I'm a foster family, come see us, come adopt my dogs. Um, and before that, I was with the British Columbia SPCA. So either of those are fantastic animal shelter networks. Awesome. So you still go to the and work at the animal shelter? Yeah. Well, we foster. So I do a lot of like, pro bono consulting if they need like employee engagement surveys and stuff like that uh-huh. and then uh, we foster so yeah so we take dogs or cats or critters home and find them homes and then take the next one yeah yeah wow. we just awesome. got our 137th one adopted very so, cool yeah i always thought like if i were to because i like animals yeah. but i also am on the road constantly and i always thought that would be a nice way for me to get my animal fix yeah. is to foster once in a while when i'm actually going to be in the same place for like one month or something you know the vast majority are called foster failures they do it once they fall in love and they adopt that animal but if you're on the road you can't really do that so yeah do it Hmm. 
Um, and then uh, any uh, any last little uh, words of wisdom that you want to impart? Any any like way of summing up yeah. kind of what we've shared? No, I guess as I've said, my research is in callings and meaningful work. And what we're finding is that more and more people are interested in seeing work as a calling. That doesn't mean they don't also need a paycheck, but they're more interested in meaningfulness, especially among the millennials and Generation Z. And so I suppose my advice to you is that's fantastic. I've pursued my calling. I consider my life very meaningful um, but it comes with the challenges and that's okay just don't expect it to be meaningfulness and happiness all the time because then you're in for a rude awakening <laughs> <laughs> those expectations yeah, sure can do a number on do us it. Uh, well thank you Kira for Anytime. joining me this is fantastic and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week Star Avenue a podcast <clears throat> a podcast network.